Great, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's uh, great to be back. If you're here last week, I was um, in the middle of probably the worst flu I've had in, in uh, well, pretty much ever. I guess I was going to say maybe like five, seven years, but basically ever. So uh, thanks again to Spence, our other pastor who preached on like a three-hour notice. Did a great job uh, picking up the, the slack, but I'm mostly back. If I'm coughing a bit um, here and there, I'll try not to blow your eardrums and maybe give you a little wave for a mute or something, I don't know, but I'm, I'm almost back, I think good enough to, to be here at least and really happy to. So, uh, And we are going to then, we delayed this last week, as uh, Peter was saying, we, we're going to start a series now in the book of Judges, uh, we'll be spending 15 weeks, give or take, likely 15 as we go throughout this series, and maybe adding a couple or maybe subtracting, probably, it's usually adding more than subtracting, uh, so 15 to 17 potentially. Uh, great book of the Bible. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you know where it is, go ahead and do that. It's the seventh book of the Bible. It's a great book, and, and by great, I don't mean comfortable. It's not a comfortable book. If you know Judges, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you will. It's not a comfortable series of narratives, but, uh, but they're, they're great in that they're here to get us to Jesus. Like everything else in the Bible is, it's, it's great in that capacity because he is great, and he is comfortable, and he is a breath of fresh air amidst an otherwise really messy set of narratives and stories of darkness and um, disobedience and idolatry and hate and murder and dismemberment and, and all kinds of things. So we'll, we'll talk more about that here in, in a second. Now the plan today is a little bit ambitious. I want to introduce the book and I'll talk about how to read the book like we normally do when we start a series. How do you approach this interpretationally? How do we approach it methodologically in that regard? How do we get meaning out of it? Uh, what's it here for? How does it help tell the greater story of Christ? We'll talk about that secondarily. And then third, preach the first 21 verses of chapter 1. So it's a lot, and so because of that, we're just going to dive right in here to um, the first part of that, which is introduce the book. So first, what is Judges? Uh, Judges is the seventh book of the Bible, as I mentioned, and it narratively recounts the history of Israel from conquest to kings. So if you don't know what that is, that's okay. We'll fill in the gaps of that as we go a little bit this morning and then throughout the series. But that's basically a time period from roughly 1400, right after the Exodus, if you know that story, uh, to 1000 BC, which butts right up to the time of the kings of Israel's history. And it pertains to, this book pertains to Israel's entrance into and conquest of this promised land that God was graciously giving to them. It's a big part of Israel's history, and it has to do with the the acquisition of this land and the conquest of this land, the driving out of these existing peoples of this land who were extremely wicked and who threatened uh, to draw Israel away from God, covenantally, but just kind of spiritually as well in terms of uh, moralistically and spiritually and those kinds of things. So it was written by a man named Samuel, uh, likely anyway. It's actually uh, silent on authorship, the book itself is. Ultimately, God wrote it. That's the most important thing to understand. But tradition says Samuel did. Samuel's the same guy who has two books of the Bible written, uh, named after him, First and Second Samuel. Uh, he was a later prophet-like figure, and he likely wrote it around 1,000 B.C. Uh, again, it's anonymous, though, so don't know this for sure. A uh, big thing to understand about judges, title-wise, is that judge here in the book means military captain or tribal chief. does not mean a courtroom judge, like with the black robe and the gavel, that whole thing. Like we think of judges, it means military captain or deliverer uh, or a tribal chieftain uh, or, or chief. So with that in mind, the book titled Judges is a collection of narratives about several judges, men and women, who are raised up by God to deliver Israel from being enslaved and oppressed to varying degrees by other nations who were still occupying this promised land God was in the act of giving them. And so now a couple of twists, though, to that. That's basically the framework. We'll talk more about this next week because Judges actually at the beginning. And I encourage you guys to read this throughout the week if you haven't already. Just read the whole thing. It's a great, great to kind of take it in, drink it in in one setting if, if you can. But in chapter 2, it talks about the, the framework and the cycle of these judges. And so when Israel would just cry out for help because they were being oppressed, God raises up a judge to deliver them. They are delivered. And this land or the people has, have rest for like a segment of time before the whole cycle starts over again. And so it's a book of cycles. And what I just described there is basically the cycle, but more on that uh, next week. The twists, though, in the book have to do a couple of levels. And there's, there's really uh, two things 
um, that, well, one thing really, but a couple of angles on it. One, Judges contains some of the darkest stories in the entire Bible. Stories of dismemberment, gang rape, human sacrifice, civil war, and very graphic killings. And these stories serve in part to demonstrate just how bad things have gotten for Israel and the surrounding nations, but for Israel, God's people, and so all of humanity uh, together with them. And we'll we'll see how they get worse as the story goes on. The book actually starts, if you don't know anything about it, it starts off kind of good. Israel's asking God for help. It's a great great prayer. And so it starts off pretty good. And, And there's glimpses, of course, in terms of the judges and how they deliver and when and against the dark backdrop against which that they, they show God's grace. There's, there's a lot of high points too, uh, but basically things get worse for the people. It's written that way, it's, but we're supposed to read it that way. As time goes on, things spiral downwards. So second then, relatedly, the second twist, kind of the same thing, but the second twist is the judges themselves get worse as time goes on as well. So we'll see in the book, they're heroes in some ways, but also very flawed at the same time. And so judges then on both counts then, so people of Israel, surrounding nations, or people kind of that are occupying the land that shouldn't be, that are extremely wicked, they're sacrificing children and all kinds of things that, that God hates, and, and he calls Israel to drive them out, and they kind of do, but kind of don't, and more on that later. But also the judges themselves, all of them together, serve as this downward spiral, so think of like the, the uh, bath water just spinning around the drain, this dirty bath water, just spinning, 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 downward spiral, downward spiral, downward spiral, of spiritual and moral aptitude, which is then a mirror for us, because we're no better, and it's a context for God to show grace and power over sin. That's why it's there. And so this is really good for us. In fact, one of the, the biggest pieces of advice I could give about reading this book or books like it is that we need this stuff. We need a healthy dose of judges in our Bible reading diet sometimes when our doctrine of sin and our own sense of moral depravity gets weak and watered down. We need to allow this to confront us when we just forget what we need to be saved from because then the whole gospel changes. Our, our perspective on why we need Christ or if we need him at all changes. And even if we think we need him, what do we need to be saved from? See, without us getting like a healthy diet of that through the lens of these kind of dark narratives and kind of saying, stating through the narratives, we're just like these people, it makes the cross all the more beautiful. It makes Jesus' redemptive offer all the more needed. It brings us to our knees. It causes us to weep. It actually makes us worship and be thankful. All these positive traits the Bible talks about, like what a Christian life should look like, we have to have judges. We need this healthy dose of it in our Bible reading diet. And there are other places, of course, in the Bible we can go to get the same thing. But narratively, uh, Judges will. I was actually reading Judges uh, a few weeks ago, laying out this series. And I, there are these, and I've read it before multiple times, but there are times where I just like audibly gasped. <laughs> I remember like, and there, there's like a lot of terrible stuff, like uh, narrative-wise in the Bible. But like way more than like our Genesis series, a lot of crazy stuff in there too and, uh, and other things we've, we've done. Audible, audibly gasped. Just, I can't believe this. I can't believe that person did that. can't believe that's here in the Bible. I forgot that this was uh, a part of God's redemptive plan and, and all that. So you'll probably have that as, as well. So brace for it, but also just accept it. You know, accept that this is part of what God wants us to understand about our own depravity so that we'll see our need for him more. Okay, so a few things on judge. If you want more than that, just talk to me. I'll spend a lot of time on this in sermon series, uh, to start sermon series, but I've got a lot of stuff if you want to read more or just talk to me about it. I would love to, uh, to talk to you more. All right, second is how to read Judges. Uh, the short answer uh, is biblically, theologically. Uh, the longer answer is, and I'll explain that phrase uh, and some other things here in addition to what's up there here uh, in a second, but the short answer is to read it with the Bible in hand, read it as though it's a part of, of a greater story. So in other words... Read it with the help of other parts of the Bible. Read it as though it's a part of a greater story and decidedly not an end to itself. Judges, really like most books of the Bible, is not a law book, meaning a series of moral commands or proverbs to observe. It's a story about land acquisition. It's a story about the movement from enslavement to freedom over and over and over and over again. 
Which means, ultimately, this is a story about Jesus Christ ahead of time because those themes are ultimately about him. And here's what I mean. Here's how we trace the, the, the land theme, kind of the, the, the land motif thematically throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, humanity had its start in a garden, a chunk of land where God says, this, this is where I'm going to be. It's called Eden. God was there. Humanity was there. Everything was utopic. It was perfect. It was called Eden. And, and after that, they sin and rebel. They're exiled from God's presence and from this garden. But then God stays strangely committed to them. He calls a people to himself by grace. He makes promises to them. He gives to them again and again and again. One of the gifts he gives them, and this is the key, one of the gifts he gives them, his people, is land. And so it kind of starts to reverse this problem that we see at the beginning of the Bible when Eden is no longer a thing. When God, God is way over here in a garden and people are way over here exiled, they can't get back in. When God starts to give land back to his people, there's this hope that maybe this whole kind of expulsion from Eden thing is going to be reversed. Maybe its time is, is almost ended. And so Judges helps tell this story. It's kind of a hope for a new Eden time. And not just, not just Judges, but other books kind of around this. When Israel, this people, got saved by grace, not because they were good, but because they were called, because God had love for them. When he's bringing them into a chunk of land, and when he himself says, I will be there, it's, there's like an Edenic, Eden-like kind of hope attached to it. And Judges helps to tell this story. We'll see this uh, today as it picks up from the book of Joshua, which is the sixth book of the Bible, uh, right before this here in just a second. But here's the twist. While the hope of a new Eden is great, it's far from realized during the time of the judges, and we'll see this in this series, which drives the story forward to a more full outcome of what God is starting to promise and what he's starting to hint at here during the time of the judges and during this period of Israel's history. And that outcome is Jesus Christ who himself doesn't just bring us to God, but who is the true land of God's presence, who says he is a share or a portion for people of faith, which those words are used for land in the Old Testament. So he's saying he's like a land of God's presence. He himself, when, when we trust in him, he will be God's presence in our life. He will bring us back to Eden. He will be like what the land kind of was in the Old Testament. He will truly be. No more separation. He'll bring us back into the garden of God's presence where we can see him face to face. And so his promise is then too of a new earth in the future when we'll actually see God face to face, look him in the eye, laugh with him, and bask in his presence. That's still coming. And that, that's when reality will truly be Edenic or, or Eden-like. Now, how does Christ accomplish this? Not unlike the judges. By freeing us from our oppressors, freeing us from our enemies, and even giving his life to do so. So in this, Jesus is the ultimate judge. Now at the theme of enemies then, uh, now this is another, another issue here altogether, but it relates. With the theme of enemies, like any good story, the, the biblical story has protagonists and antagonists, good guys, bad guys, conflict and, and resolution. But the idea of enemy, biblically, this is a really important part interpretationally for this book, the idea of enemy biblically takes different shape at different periods of, of history. Yet the Bible is clear. The true enemy behind all other enemies is sin, death, and the devil. The true problem is separation from God. So, interpretively, when we read the Bible and stories like this in the Bible or books like this in the Bible, we need to read about lesser enemies in this greater light. So, Philistines, Moabites, Egyptians, Goliaths, etc. are all types or physical pictures of sin. Jesus helps us here when he, when he says in John 8, 34, on the other side of the cross, I did not do that. That was, seriously, that was not me. Did you go back to that John 8 uh, one there, Caleb? Yeah, go way back. You'll see it. So in John 8, 34, Jesus says, All who commit a sin are a slave to sin. All who commit a sin are enslaved or oppressed by sin or enslaved to, to sin. Now, he's saying this to Jewish people who have a long history of being enslaved to other nations. We're going to go about a bunch of those situations here in Judges these next 15 weeks. 
So he's saying this to a group of people of a long history of being physically enslaved to other nations. He's saying, here's what's truly enslaving you. When you commit a sin, you are enslaved to and oppressed by it. So Jesus here is not redefining the idea of enslavement necessarily. He's just exposing what it always truly was. And how lesser forms of enslavement and kind of redemptive history in earlier, in earlier parts of the Bible can demonstrate what our true enslavement is. Or as Ephesians 6, 12 says in the New Testament, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But here, here's the catch with that. This has to inform how we read about battles in the Old Testament that are against flesh and blood. So you see the tension? In the Old Testament, the battle is against flesh and blood sometimes. But then here in the New Testament saying, actually, it never really was. And so Judges seems to say that it is, but we have to allow the end of the book to inform the beginning. Christ is basically saying here, now here's what the true enemy always was. The beginning of the book testifies to this as well. The true problem is separation from God. The true enemy is sin. The true issue is death. The devil's a real antagonist. And so those are the things that all other enemies of the Bible, including and maybe especially in the era of the judges, are typifying and pointing to. The tensions resolved by that first sentence up there. The Old Testament physical enemies are anticipations of and kind of physical whispers and copies of spiritual enemies. This is how the stories fit together. And so a simple interpretational, simple but crude, interpretational cheat sheet would be to see the judges themselves as pictures of Christ, Israel, and sometimes the judges too, because they're just terrible people a lot of times, are pictures of us. Other nations are pictures of sin and death and demonic oppression and the problem of being separated from God. And the idea of land, or another word you'll see in this book a lot, rest, which is synonymous for, for having salvific rest or closeness to God in this land, this kind of New Eden-like land in the Old Testament, that also is a picture of Christ, or as it says here, salvation experienced. Now, a quick disclaimer on this. It's not always this simple. It's not always this simple. We'll see this in the series. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And I want you guys to see that you can understand this book. God wants to be known. You don't have to understand Hebrew to understand this book. God's not hiding behind an ancient language you don't know, waiting for you to figure him out. He wants to be known. He, he's revealing himself principally through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you know him, you can read him back into these stories and understand the former whispers the former prophecies, the former foreshadowings, the things that were helping to tell that greater story he was always intending and that we're a part of. So if you know Christ, if you understand the gospel, you can truly understand what this book means. Be encouraged in that. God wants to be known. He's not hiding from you. He's not hiding from us. He wants to be known. He wants to speak to us. He wants to reveal himself. And the way he does that is through Jesus Christ and him crucified, even here in the book of Judges. We'll see this play out a little bit here this morning and also um, later. Uh, next week, too, we'll talk about this on an introductory level as well. If this is a new concept for you, it's, it's probably a paradigm shift or just strange. Um, we'll get examples of this for the rest of the morning here as we look at chapter 1. And uh, also, again, into next week. Um, but because the book is cyclical, uh, this cheat sheet will be helpful for you to have. Just kind of on the forefront of your mind or write it down and look for Christ and our story in these ways as we read. Okay, so the, the third section here uh, is looking to look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. I just want to summarize the book here, uh, or at least kind of the, the context leading up to the book, kind of, lead, kind of going back into the book of Joshua a little bit, and then into what's happening here in Israel's history around this, this time period. So, as I said before, God has, has led Israel up out of slavery to the Egyptians through the desert or the wilderness for 40 years, and now this second generation of Israel is finally entering the land, or this kind of new Eden only to find themselves in this predicament now between experiencing God's grace in the gift of the land, but also being disobedient to God's call to drive out all the existing people 
from the land. And Joshua talks about this. If you want to go back and read some of that, I encourage you to as well. The book of Joshua is kind of like a, a first part to Judges, just as kind of like a second part to this whole land acquisition or, or conquest idea of, of God bringing his people in, but also saying, I want you to drive out the people who are there. And so that's a, that's a big theological kind of a, a, a tough idea in one sense, too, to interpret why, why is that the case? Where is the love of God in that? We'll talk about that throughout this series. But just understand for today, these are extremely wicked people. And God's been actually patient with them as well. The Bible says he's patient with these people groups. And their sin hadn't quite welled up enough yet, as it talks about way back in Genesis, and quite welled up enough yet to justify expulsion uh, from the land. But it finally had. And so Israel, in part here, is God's instrument from kind of purifying this land from wickedness. So it would be more of a pure place for his people when, when they enter. But, but again, the predicament is this. They're experiencing this grace, but they're not being obedient to the heavenly vision, obedient to God's call to expulse these people out of, of the land. And they're, and they're bearing the, the kind of the penalty of that or, or, or the curse of it. So as it says here, they didn't drive out the people, and at least in part. And so Israel quickly becomes stained by their false religions, stained by their idolatry and licentious lifestyles. We'll see this more a little bit later in the series, not so much today, but it's going to happen. So Judges 1, then, is the story of ongoing conquest. Joshua just died. He was their former leader after Moses. And the people are asking God for direction. So as I said before, it actually starts off really great. Joshua dies, and the people are like, what are we going to do? And they actually go right to God. It's a great prayer. What should we do? Who should go up for us to fight these Canaanites? It, it basically, it's like as good as the book gets right here in verse 1. is isn't really true, but, but it kind of is. It starts off on a pretty, pretty good note and, and then sort of, goes, sort of goes south, which we'll see. Okay. Um, just a quick map here, too, for those of you that like maps. Um, I know you can't really, you guys can't see this super well. Uh, the green area is basically, uh, the, it kind of denotes the area during the settlement period. So Israel, as they're settling in the land, um, are filling in these areas. And then the, the judges sort of live and, and, and minister, so to speak, all kind of on the left side of this, uh, of this chart in what's becoming Israel proper on the west side of the Jordan east side of the Mediterranean, north of Philistia, kind of around Philistia as well too. But um, we'll, we'll see more maps later, but you're going to see a lot of names, weird names, geographical uh, strangeness uh, na- names as well in this. Don't get too hung up on that. Just understand that everything's happening here within this promised land, God-promised land, which is uh, formerly called Canaan. So those who descended from the man Canaan is referenced in Genesis 10. It's another story. Uh, but now becoming Israel's land, God's land, and uh, so it's all happening right around, right around here. But if you like maps, there you go. We'll, we'll show a few more in the series uh, as, as well. All right, so here we go. Judges 1, uh, 1 to 21. Actually, skipping in verses 11 to 15. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. It refers to Othniel, who is, the, who is actually the first judge, uh, and so I'm going to lump that in with uh, part of chapter um, I think he's in chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll come, back to, come back to that. All right, here we go. Judges 1, 1 to 21. Let's dive into this. Verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They fought Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so has God repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev 
and in the lowlands. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Telmai. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses has said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites had li- have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. All right, so super preachable passage here, right? Here we go. Um, now, this, this last verse, if, if you want to go back, we're not going to look at the rest of chapter 1 in this series, but basically the rest of chapter 1 has to do with what's happening here with Benjamin, not driving out people groups. That's repeated by other, other tribes of Israel. So at this point in history, Israel is a, a, a nation of 12 tribes who originally were the 12 sons of Jacob, going back to Genesis. Judah's one of them. Benjamin, here's another. Simeon's another. Uh, Manasseh is mentioned, is actually one of the sons of Joseph, but he's mentioned a little bit later in chapter 1 as well. But there's this widespread, not just inability, but failure to drive out the people that God commanded them to. And again, there's suffering, there's kind of people being stained by, by the presence of these people because of it, and it's sort of a thorn in the side idea. As it says here, the Jebusites, uh, these wicked people, lived amongst the people of Israel, the people of Benjamin, up to this day. So it's just kind of a commentary on uh, the problem that that, that that brings forth. So, but, but at least have, have in your mind the idea of did not drive out, did not drive out. We'll, we'll talk about that theme here uh, a little bit later, later on. So what I want to do, though, uh, with this read is talk about three things today that, that I think will preach this passage, uh, but also serve as examples of how to go about looking at it. So uh, it'll be, feel a little bit introduction-y, uh, but we'll also preach this. We'll find the gospel in it. We'll find meaning in it. Uh, we'll see the, the whisper of kind of the greater story that God is more interested in telling through this smaller one. Uh, but also, again, it'll serve as examples of what we just talked about. When we talked about how do you read it in the second portion of, of, of the sermon today. All right, so the first piece, so, the, so three theological lessons from Judges 1 uh, in, in light of all that. The first is that the primacy of Judah. The, in one sense, the first judge. So th- those are my words. That's not... He's not called that in the book, but he's judge-like tribally. So whenever you see Judah here, let me actually read verse 1 again. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So Judah here, though referred to in the singular, like other tribes like Simeon too, he talks to Simeon, Judah's a tribe, a group of people descended from Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons, I mentioned that. And as we see here, he has this preferential status before God. Main reason being, it's the tribe of Jesus Christ, Judah is. It's the, eventual, it's the tribe of the eventual Christ, the tribe of kings. So Judah then, biblically, but also historically, is literally an ancestor of Jesus. And figuratively, a resembler of him. So this is a big deal back in our Genesis series, which has been a while now actually, hasn't it? But we talked a lot about the idea of genealogy and how biblically and theologically, when we talk about ancestral lines, so when, when Jesus' ancestral line is traced in the Bible, you know, we're seeing bloodline, we're seeing God make promises to people and then say, one of your sons, 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 sons will kind of be the manifestation, the full manifestation of this promise. But we're also seeing the idea of resemblance. You know, just like all of us resemble our grandfathers or grandmothers or great-grandparents on some level. There's, there's difference, but there's some kind of resemblance. There's names or maybe similar looks or something like that. When the Bible talks about genealogy, it talks about, you know, transmission of promise and just kind of factual genealogies. Like Jesus was a real human being who had ancestors. 
but it also talks about resemblance. It also implies resemblance. It's the same here then with Judah. Jesus came, and the Bible's very clear to point this out, multiple vantage points. Jesus came from Judah. It's really important. So Judah, again, biblically, but also historically, literally an ancestor of Jesus, and figuratively a resembler of Jesus. Which then helps us understand why the book would begin with this question at all. Why God's working this way? Why he's kind of selective? Why the people are even asking God this this question? Because it's a little odd, isn't it? Who will go up for us first? Did there need to be one tribe to fight for the others? You know, God's answer is not, how about all of you just go up? Strength in numbers, right? That's not what he says. Rather, one tribe will alone, at least at this juncture, and at least primarily, so first, will will go up. He will be the, the leader tribe and the one to do the heavy lifting. And that is Judah. And here's how beautiful and prophetic this is, to connect these kind of theological dots here. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ says, when we similarly ask God for help, he doesn't say, you go up. He says, Jesus, the ultimate Judahite, will go up. That's his answer. This isn't advice here. It's good news. You know, it's saying God has given the land, you know, to this tribe Judah. In in the same way, he has given it to Christ. So, So the heavy lifting is Jesus's. He actually possesses our salvation. It's his gift to give. See how different that is? This is a huge, huge theme in Judges. It's not God training his people to fight, but rather identifying a singular savior figure to fight on their behalf. Judges is not about training us. It's about identifying other people other than us to do the heavy lifting and to fight. It's like the book just can't wait to get to this theme. It's just begging to. And so it starts off with a question and God making it very clear, it's not going to be the rest of you. It's going to be this one singular, singular tribe. Judah, the tribe of kings, this preferred tribe of the eventual Christ and the tribe that resembles his, his eventual saving work and what he will be like. So, so we'll see that play a little bit more in this series. But, but it's a huge theme to, to see not just here with Judah but for the other judges who sometimes are Judahites, sometimes they're not. But the point's still the same. God, God is more interested in identifying savior figures than he is training his people to fight. Get used to seeing Israel watch from the sidelines in this book. Used to watching them sit on the bench and watch and appreciate and worship and humbly sit there and say, look at that strength of that guy. God's good. God's listened to us again. He's been gracious again. He's answered our prayers again. This is our story. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel whispered in Judges 1. So, okay. So as a first piece to this first section, the primacy of Judah, we also see in the first several verses, and, and I think connecting Judah and Jesus uh, helps, in the first several verses we see this story of Judah going up to, to Bezek, and there's this guy named Adonai, Adonai means Lord, so Adonai Bezek is Lord of Bezek, uh, so Bezek is a place, but anyway, there's this king, they defeat him, and it says in verse 7, they cut off his thumbs and toes, so Quite a way to start a book here, right? There's already dis- dismemberment happening. Uh, cozy up to that one and um, with your cup of coffee and devotionals and all that. But, but, but that's what happens. First seven verses. So now a couple, a couple things on this, and if we wrestle with this, you know, I want, to, um, I want to wrestle with it with you guys just for a few minutes and talk about how to handle this. This is a good, like, uh, test one or, or practice for us because things get way worse than this. Uh, this is not when I gasped when I read it, by the way. This, uh, that was much later. It gets a lot worse. Uh, so, but this is a good practice. H- how do we interpret this? What does this mean? Is there good news here? Is there sin here? Is there Christ here? And so really, there's, there, there's all three. It just depends on how you look at it. But, but I want you to see these are very complicated narratives. 
So on one level, when we look at this uh, situation, if it's unnecessary cruelty, so, so if Judah is being unnecessarily cruel, that's sin. That's on them, and that's, that's on us for being similarly cruel in, in our lives. Because God is not cruel. And by cruel, I mean taking delight and pleasure in watching people suffer. God is just. God is an avenger. But he's not cruel. So if this is unnecessary cruelty, that's, uh, and notice here in the story, it's not a God-endorsed thing. God doesn't say do that. It just is just described. And so we have to do that hard work of saying, well, were they supposed to? Is this good for them to do this? If it's unnecessary cruelty, that sin needs to be called it. That's on them and not on God uh, because God isn't cruel. So that, that's the first thing to say. Second, God, with, with that said, though, God does have a righteous hatred against evil and against that which harms his people and threatens them, like this king was to Israel in the first century. In the end, for us, that's sin. God has a righteous hatred against evil, against sin, against those things that harm us and keep us from him, which God intends to cripple, like this king, cripple in our lives through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, it's visceral imagery, but super good news for people who feel under the thumb of their sin. And so also consider then, uh, when you look at the king, his statement. It's interesting that they include his statement here um, in in the narrative. Um, When when he says, I used to do this to others, so the, the king of Bezek is saying, I used to cut off thumbs and toes of kings myself, 70 of them. They would gather crumbs under my table. Now he's saying, now, now what I used to do to others, now it's been done to me. Then he says this, God has repaid me. So let me ask you this question. Is that good theology? God has repaid me? It's kind of hard, right? I mean, in one sense, it's not. In one sense, this guy does not understand the God of the Bible. He doesn't understand grace. And he's showing us that. Because God does not operate on a tit-for-tat kind of level, especially when we talk about him operating through his son, through Jesus, and how he faces sinners, and how he saves sinners, and how he treats us in a way that our sins, our sins deserve, but he doesn't treat us that way, like Psalm 103 says. So on one level, no, it's not how God operates. The king does not understand. He's got, God's a God of grace who treats us not according to what our sins deserve. And, and, but then again, on the flip side of that, God eventually does operate that way. Hell is a real place. Wrath is coming against non-believers. And so, see, these, these, are, these are very complicated narratives. Very complicated. They're not always clear stories of right and wrong. I mean, sometimes they are. I guess, you know, one takeaway would be don't go and cut off thumbs and toes of people to spread the gospel or something. You know, that that's, probably goes without saying, but, but in that sense, it's clear. But in another sense, it's not. It's not a clear story of, of reward and punishment. God is full of grace towards wicked people, like Israel. Israel's no better than these people here, but they're being shown patience and grace by God. How does that work? God's full of grace towards wicked people, Yet he's full of justice too. It's good that, he has, that he's an avenger. He doesn't condone a lot of what Israel does in this book, but he does raise up judges to destroy other nations. He does that time and time and time again in this book. And for us, he has that kind of vengeance against our sin. And it's good news. But how does all that come together? It's complicated. They seem to just butt up against each other and almost kind of contradict a bit or at least are held in tension. But how does all that come together? How are the tensions of judges resolved? The big answer is through the cross. This is where it comes together. Where justice and mercy interact. Where Jesus' body is harmed for us. He, he is there on the cross. Christ is a king who suffers like the king in Judges 1. He's a king who suffers in association with our acquisition of salvific land. And here at the cross, too, when we look at the cross, we're seeing Jesus die for cruel people. But he also has vengeance on our sin at the same time. And tertiarily, he's also taking on God's wrath for us. He's bearing the penalty. He's 
he's like all the, the enemies, in a sense, of, of this book, where he's taking on punishment. He's taking on wrath in our place. He's dying as a substitute. This is the gospel. So that it says here in Romans 3, he's just and the justifier. So Romans 3 says, God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice so that he might be just. So God is just against sin. He's judging sin, but also the justifier. So the the perfect maker, the reconciler, the fixer of problems, the innocent maker of the guilty. He's both at the same time because of the interaction between justice and mercy happening on the cross. Someone's paying for our sin. God's just. Our sin's being judged. God is just. And he's merciful at the same time because he's justifying the ungodly. This all happened. Look at the first part of the verse in 25. God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice so he might be both. His attributes might be both kind of exercised and put forth. He has to be just. He wouldn't be good if he wasn't just. But he's also the most loving being in the universe. And so because of what Jesus did here, he passes over our sin at the same, at the same time. And there's so much more we could say here, but the point is, the messiness of narratives like Judges 1, where you see this kind of almost conflicting thing, God is passing over sin in injustice. And yet he's showing immense love at the same time. And yet he's warring against evil at the same time, paying people back for harming his people. How does that go together? This is the only place, the only place it makes sense. that Judges will make the cross make more sense to you and to me, if we're careful. If we really, I think, are reading this in the way it's supposed to be read, the cross will be more wanted, but it will make more sense. It will be visceral and bloody and messy and almost hard to look at. Because judges is those things. And so we need someone to take on all the curses and the messes of judges for us. And Christ, praise be to God, does that. He takes on our messes. Okay, so that's the first piece. The primacy of Judah, this first tribal judge, and how he himself references Christ and points to him and serves as kind of a copy of him ahead of time in history. All right, the second thing is this theme of repetition. And so I want to talk about this here because it it fits best in the book. It's a little less pronounced later in the book, but you see it here and in other Old Testament books like Numbers or, like I said, Joshua before. You see this theme of repetition of tribes of Israel or Israel as a whole going up into the land and kind of taking back land and destroying uh, different sinful people groups or driving them out at least and again, um, acquiring this land and so forth, um, it's very repetitious. And, and, and a lot of the Old Testament narratives are this way. You know, one question you could ask here, and I actually just wrote it out, you know, couldn't, couldn't all the, of chapter one just be summarized into a verse? Judah fought against a bunch of wicked promised land inhabiting peoples and won back territory for Israel? Period. On a chapter two. Couldn't it just be that simple? You know why, like, Judah went up here, Judah went up there, Judah went up here, Judah went up there, Simeon went with him, Manasseh went over here. You know, it's just like this repetitious, repetitious, repetitious thing. And we'll see more of that in different ways in the book. In one sense, and and to start to answer the question, I I have a different thing here, but to start to answer it, repetition is, we'd say this about good literature today, it's a literary device. When things are repeated, they're underscored. It's like, it's like a way for an author to say, this is important. I don't want you to miss it. Uh, it I, I want you to, to see the same thing happening with a slightly different angle or with a different person or a different tribe. It's a very important piece to, to Israel's story and therefore ours. So if the question is, can't they have just said that? I mean, on one level, literarily, if, if they, the Bible is written in my lame summary here, it would just be lamer. It'd be like, oh, that was boring, you know? But the, the, just the way it's written... It's better. So on a literary level, no, it couldn't have been. But here's here's the more full, I think, theological answer. The answer is no. Couldn't be this. Because Judah's systemic, widespread victory over different types of enemies, over different geographical areas, points us to a really amazing theological truth. 
that we just wouldn't have if it was summarized in a sentence like this. At least it would be watered down. And here's the truth. That Jesus, as the ultimate Judah, is thorough in how he saves us and in what he saves us from. So think about Jesus' earthly ministry for a second. If you guys have read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm talking about his time, the time of his ministry, so kind of in between baptism and death. What was he doing? Does he just address one kind of affliction? No. He heals skin ailments, deafness, paralysis, demonic oppression, relational separation, thirst, hunger, loneliness, and the doozy, even death. And that's just to name a few. His ministry helps tell the same story Judges is. In the same way Judah goes up and fights different kinds of nations and different kinds of territory in different kinds of ways, so does Jesus go up to different towns and fight off different kinds of afflictions, which starts to get at the core of what our true enemy really is. It's not the Philistines. It's not the Egyptians. It's not the Goliaths. It's the fact that we die. That's a much bigger problem. And he's here to face it. He's more of a doctor. And so the fact that he's doing this mimics what Judah did before him. But here's here's where it's all headed. When Christ dies for us, when he dies for us on the cross, he doesn't just die for deceitfulness or a couple of white lies. He dies for all sins. In fact, he himself says in, in Mark 3, it's one of the greatest verses of Bible. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Did you guys know this? All sins, whatever blasphemies, whatever curses that we utter against God, even those, the cross is big enough for that. The cross is big enough for spitting in the face of God. That fits with judges. Or you'll see this if you don't know the book yet. It fits with judges. The cross needs to be what it is to satisfy these type of sins and, and offenses. But look at the all. All means all. All sins will be forgiven people. So this is why Judges 1, the way it's written, is so important. Judge, er, Judah's thoroughness in victory points to Jesus' thoroughness in victory. So that we can't say, this sin is too big, or this heart is too unloving, or my past is too dark, or my doubt is too persistent. We can't say that because of how thorough Judah was, and especially how thorough Jesus was. We can't say it. It's written this way to kind of strike at our heart a bit, to console us. If Jesus just addressed one affliction, if Judah just went against one particular people group, we might be able to say that. We might be able to think it a little bit more, but God doesn't want us to think that. He wants us to know that whatever we've done, I mean, think of the worst thing you've ever done or ever heard of someone doing. Here's what Judges 1 whispers. The cross is big enough for that. Judah's defeat of the 10,000 at Bezek gives way to Jesus defeating 10,000 of my worst sins. That's what we need. A Savior with that type of power. 10,000. I, I, I couldn't even name 10,000 sins, but I know I have them. This is how bad things are. You know, we've got a list, but we have that many. And so, I, you know, I th- we should be consoled in knowing that Jesus is addressing things, we don't even, problems we don't even know we have. Sins we don't even know we commit. Unintentional things. He's, he, he's at work going up to address them, going up to fight them for us. And not just face-palming on his throne, saying, I can't believe they can't get their act together. And like, what do you think about when you think about God when, when you're sinning? And I mean when you're sinning. Face-palm or grieved, but actively going up into the darkest corners of your heart and addressing those things and fighting them, taking them away from you. It's a much better picture. 
All right, and, and, and the third thing, which is kind of the flip of this, and get used to that. This is going to sound, Judges sometimes is like, you know, in, in one narrative, we've got a picture of Christ, and that same person is a picture of a wretch. You know, so it's like, well, he's Jesus-like here, but man, that's a lot like me here. He's, he's a sinner. So it's kind of like flipping around. You'll see here what I mean. But the, the third thing, theological lesson, is the inability to drive out certain people. Maybe you saw this. Let me read it again. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. The Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So there's a twist here, and I highlighted it for kind of ease of identification. It's subtle, though. It's really easy to miss. But notice here in the narrative, there is a failure, but also an inability to drive out people. There's a failure by Benjamin, but an absolute inability because of the chariots of iron, an inability of Judah to drive out uh, these, these particular people, these inhabitants of the plain, they're called. So in this, then, Judah becomes more of a picture of us as sinners, just as frail human beings than Christ. Our sin sits on chariots of iron laughing at our sticks for weapons. If it was just failure to do it, if it was just failure to drive out, and I mean like talking about us now and our sin, if it was just about failure to do it, then we could conceivably conclude that we could address our sin by ourselves. This is the lesson that, would, that it would be then in Judges 1. Learn from the Benjaminites, learn from their bad example, and try harder. If it were just about failure, we'd say, learn from the Benjaminites, try harder to drive out your sin and do it. But since it's an inability, not just a failure, a sheer inability to drive out, it drives us to another solution altogether, namely Christ. It's reminded me of the end of the book, Revelation 5. This is the, this is the, um, uh, the Apostle John writing this, getting a vision uh, kind of about the present church age with kind of a, a hint towards the future too. But anyway, it's another thing. Revelation 5, 2 to 5, one of John's visions, it's, it's about Christ. He says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, this right here, uh, kind of, you know, in a nice mixed-up cocktail with Judges 1, this right here is what it means to be a Christian. This perspective, this posture, this weeping, this solution. It also means what it, what it means to become a Christian. Those of you that are, that are considering becoming a Christian, asking questions, this is what it means. To realize your inability, to weep over it, then rejoice over Christ's ability and love for you. Shown most beautifully and powerfully and importantly at the cross when he slayed our worst nightmares. When he, when he bridged the gap between, when he, when he ended exile from Eden, when he brings us back into God's garden. See, no, notice the angel here doesn't put his hand on the weeping man John's back and say, hey now, Judah, no, you can do it. Just try harder. Get back in there. Open that scroll. Wouldn't that be our culture's mantra? Stop crying. You can do it. Open that scroll. Just get a better tool. Get in there. You can do it. Put your mind to it. You can do whatever you want. I guarantee there will be a thousand commercials during the Olympics that will say just something like that this year. If you put your, your mind to it, you can be just like this athlete. 
Try harder. You can do it. That's not what the angel says. That's not the, that's not the solace he gets. It's not you can do it. Aw. It's you can't. But what makes him stop weeping? Jesus is here. The lion of the tribe of, there it is again, Judah. The ultimate Judahite. He's able to open the scroll. He's able to unlock the seals. He's able to solve mysteries. He's able to do the work. He's able to open up the scroll of salvation and wipe our tears away and roar for our salvation and fight on behalf of his brothers like Judah before him. That's the Judges 1 gospel lesson that really, um, I mean, at the end of the day, this is what it means, but I also want to start this series with you guys with this type of idea. This is about worship. This is about accepting and just believing in the power of God. For There's no advice here. Like I was saying earlier, there's no training for battle here. There's a selection of someone who's not us to go up and fight. And the good news here is, guys, that's true every day. This is not, oh yeah, that was kind of true when I converted as a Christian back in college. That was my story then. This is, this is the Christ every day. That this is, you know, when, when we ask, and these are, the, these are biblical questions. These are biblical questions. Who will go up for us to fight first the Canaanites? It's the same question as Revelation 5, really, which is, who is worthy to open up the scroll of salvation? And the answer is, decidedly, not us. Not us, not us, not us. Only Jesus. Who's able to forgive my systemic selfishness? Who's able to fix my depression and anxiety, my inclination to worship myself and other things? My, my doubts and my disbeliefs and my arrogance and pride. Who's able to go up and fight those things for me? Like, are you guys sick of fighting them? Are you sick of trying? There's just so many things, so many things in my life that on my own, as I fight them, I'm just sick of it. I mean, I can't, there's no change without Christ. There's no change without taking my gaze off myself and my sin and putting it on a beautiful Savior. That's the only place to get change. You know, God, God is not saying, be good to be saved. He's saying, look at the Judahite. And the Bible is saying, there is no salvation without a Judahite and a fight. There has to be a Judahite, just like in Judges 1 and just like on the cross, the ultimate one, the son of David, who himself was a Judahite, a king, the king of Old Testament terms, kind of king of kings, but Christ himself is the ultimate one, who was also the son of God, who again came to roar for our salvation, fight our battles, and go up to, um, to fight in our behalf because we're his brothers. And that's, so be encouraged in that, you guys. Believe that today. That, that's my, that's what I kind of implore here and encourage you guys and myself with that. And if you're not a Christian, uh, that's what it means to become one, is to have this kind of Revelation 5 posture of I can't open it and, and weep over your sin and inability, but then, but then let Christ wipe your tears away when he's able to do it. That's how much you're loved. God loves you much more than, than if you were just to say try harder. That's not a loving thing. He, he wants to fight your battles. Let him believe in him. And we'll see him do this repeatedly under the umbrella of the principle of grace, not works. Grace over works throughout the, throughout the series. Um, but for today, let's, let's rejoice in that together. With that, let me pray. God, thank you so much for, for Judges 1. Uh, thank you for the, for the book itself, for this a beautiful mix of darkness and light. Uh, God, help us as we read it this week. And I pray you'd give us all time to do that in our schedules, uh, or at least some of it. Um, but God, as we do that, uh, just blow us away, Father, with your uh, patience and the kindness that you show to like the worst possible people we can even cram into our minds. Uh, really pictures of us, but um, as we read this, just bad people that you're still working through, but also kind of around and in spite of. God, it's, it's hard to read. It's actually pretty, uh, pretty offensive, really offensive. Uh, but if we know our sin, it's actually um, it's pretty great. 
uh, God. So and build up our church in this next series, God, and, uh, and as we enter, communion, enter into communion now and take it together and worship, bless this time, and may you be in the forefront of our minds, these kind of themes. In Christ's name we pray, amen.